Good morning, Westridge. I know why you're so happy today. I watched you coming in. You're giddy. It's because this is the last message in the series, Life Questions. That's why, isn't it? <laughs> you are such terrible fakers. There are two... Um, by the way, this is a fifth message. Can you believe it's been that long? Your long national nightmare is over, finally. There are two undeniable trends happening in this country today that uh, if you're a part of a vibrant, relevant church, church like Westridge, you might not know. One is the decline of church involvement nationally. It's been going on for some years now, and it's pretty much across the board. All denominations, all types, sizes of churches are experiencing a pretty consistent decline. At the same time, and perhaps even more stunning and shocking to those who study this kind of thing, is a rise in the number of people in this country who would call themselves unaffiliated. That is to say, if they were to take a test and say, uh, how would you describe yourself? Christian, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, etc., 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 or a box at the bottom that would be none, increasing numbers of people in this country, particularly those in their 20s, 18 to 30, are checking the none box in an unprecedented way. I tell you all that to say... Today's message, if you're in that one that would click the none box, this message is for you. If that's not you, this message is for you to take to someone that you know like that. And I'm guessing you know someone like that. They're just not affiliated in any way. It's not that they're an atheist. It's just they can't seem to find a faith that fits them or one that's plausible for them. Okay? Everyone know what their seat is on the bus today? I think today in this last final question, I have something to offend everyone. And then I ride off into the sunset. This is where the cowboy rides away. Have you ever been in a relationship that you would classify as interesting, even fun? There was curiosity about the other person, actual enjoyment. But at some point in the development of that relationship, there came a time of decision. Am I going to invest in this relationship a little bit more or not? Is this person my one and only? And then as you start to make those decisions, it's very easy for doubt to creep in. Second thoughts. Your mind races to other viable options. Buyer's remorse sets in. Every relationship has its defining moments. In fact, most relationships have multiple defining moments. The initial decision to develop the relationship, the decision to work through when difficulties come, and do I need to tell you, difficulties come. The decision to continue in the relationship for the long haul, or not. Turns out, our relationship with God is no different. If God is someone who wants to have a relationship with his creation and is not simply the prime mover, a first cause, a theology, a creed, an impersonal force, a beam of light, then nothing makes more sense than the question that Jesus puts to his disciples in today's question. It's a defining moment kind of question. 
In our text today, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus actually asked two questions. So let's read the text. It goes like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, I don't know, others Elijah, still others, maybe Jeremiah, some prophets, some other prophets, I don't know. But what about you? What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The two questions are, essentially, what's the word on the street and what's the word in your heart? Or to put it another way, who am I to you? What kind of relationship are we going to have going forward? Now keep in mind, by this time, the disciples had been traveling with Jesus for a considerable amount of time. They had already heard him give the Sermon on the Mount. They had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. They had seen the lame walk, the blind see. And now, 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 they are being asked to make a decision about all of that. All they'd seen, all they'd heard. It was a defining moment in the relationship. And so, as we have tried to do for five long weeks... We've tried to hone our spiritual listening skills, haven't we? Let's do it one more time. And let's identify some defining moments in a relationship. Defining moment number one, the introduction. Have you ever seen someone from a distance? Someone that you thought had the potential to be someone in your life? Maybe it was a potential spouse, a close friend, a business partner, an employer, employee... And from a distance, they looked one way. And after the introduction and getting to know them just a bit, you discovered they were entirely different than you thought they were. Could have been that you thought they were a jerk and they turned out to be really nice. Or vice versa. They turned out to be a jerk. Same thing can happen with Jesus. In this pluralistic 21st century America in which we live, it seems to me that it's easy to get introduced to a distorted Jesus, not the real Jesus that the Gospels record for us. And so I want to I just introduce you to three bad representatives to introduce people to Jesus that I think is going on today. And the first one I'm going to charitably call the clowns. Now, with all apologies to professional clowns in the audience, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking to clownish clowns. These are the people who hide behind the cross in order to disguise their illegal, immoral, unethical actions. They're the pedophiles. They're the sexual predators. They're the embezzlers. They're the pastors who own five bitleys and private aircraft while their church members lead a modest life. Or maybe they're just the plain old narcissistic egomaniacs. They couldn't make it in the corporate and political world, so they're going to build their own brand and put a Jesus sticker on the side of it and pretend they're somebody. And maybe you or someone you know got introduced to Jesus through one of these high-profile or small-time clowns. And you thought to yourself, that's not what I'm interested in. 
bad rep number two, I'll call the controllers. In the Bible, these people were called the Pharisees. They're the ones that wanted Jesus dead. They had a law for everything, and they used God as an excuse to enforce those laws with an iron fist. Newsflash. They're still alive today. They're not interested in you having a relationship with Jesus. They're interested in controlling every single aspect of your life. Talk this way, dress this way, eat, drink this way, worship this way, don't watch those movies, those TV shows. Controllers may vary with regard to the rules and laws they make up to enforce upon you, but I found that they have one thing in common. They have no sense of humor, especially when it comes to religion. So if you find a humorless, controlling lawgiver, my advice to you is to turn around and run the other way. Bad representative to introduce you to Jesus. The third bad rep that I'll mention to you is a bit more difficult to understand. I'm calling it just culture. Now, culture is everything human beings create. And every church in every age has a culture, a way of doing things. And there are lots of categories of church culture. They express our preferences, our talents, our biases. I'm going to mention a key one. And that's art as church culture. Now, you go to any world-class museum in the world, and you will see paintings depicting Christian scenes. They represent the best art of their day. And by virtue of the fact that it's still hanging in the museum, it's art that has stood the test of time. Fast forward to America 2013. If the adjective Christian is used in front of the word art, its code in dominant culture for subpar, derivative, kitschy. I've stated it for a decade now. Now, it may not be always fair, but that's the perception. For example, 75% of men aged 18 to 34 say they would rather kill themselves with a steak knife than watch an episode of Touched by an Angel. No offense to those of you who like Touched by an Angel. Feel sorry for you. <laughs> and so maybe for you, it was church culture. You know, artifacts that got created inside the church, the, the music, the movies, the fictional books, the buildings, the non-ironic way of talking. And that was your introduction to Jesus. And you just couldn't relate because if Jesus is anything like church culture, I don't see any future for a relationship. May I make the case for you to see through the clowns and the controllers and the church culture and move to defining moment number two, the investigation. Investigators should be given room to investigate. And a forced or coerced decision, no decision at all, so no coercion going on here. It's just that the real Jesus bears little resemblance to the Hollywood Jesus. Take, for example, emotionally. I don't know if you remember all those old Jesus movies. You know, to me, they portray a quaalude Jesus. He's just kind of moving through real slow. He's wearing a bathrobe and talks slow and touches people slow. And, 
And I don't know about you, but I can't relate to that emotionally. I'm not slow anything. And I suppose it would be hard for you to relate to the Quaalude Jesus, unless, of course, you are, in fact, also on Quaaludes. <laughs> the real Jesus, the Bible tells us about, has a range of emotions. Jesus is moved with compassion, or he's filled with pity. He's angry with cold-hearted controllers. He has grief over an unreceptive city. He is exuberant over his disciples' success. And then there are the awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. As a child, I remember seeing pictures of Jesus holding a sheep. Never saw a picture of Jesus holding a whip. But it wasn't all macho either. In marked contrast to the culture in which Jesus lived, he showed sensitivity to women and children in his day, something most didn't do. C.S. Lewis says, as only he can, speaking of Jesus, he was not at all like the psychologist's picture of the integrated, balanced, adjusted, happily married, employed, popular citizen. You can't really be very well adjusted to your world if it says you have a demon and ends by nailing you up naked to a stake of wood. Jesus defied conventional categories of personality and temperament. Well, how about his background and his upbringing? Perfect pedigree and family, right? What about his genealogy? Of course, there's King David in there, but also in his genealogy was a prostitute named Rahab, a Gentile named Ruth, an incest victim named Tamar. Jesus' own name, the word name, the, the name Jesus wasn't even anything special in his day. It was a common name, not unlike the name Bob today, with all apologies to Bob's here today. Jesus even spent his infancy as a refugee in Egypt. And then when he came back from Egypt because of political moves, Joseph had to move his family to Nazareth in the northern part, in Galilee. What that meant was that Jesus grew up in an area of the country that got little respect from the rest of the country. Nazareth was the farthest province from Jerusalem and the most backward culturally. Sort of like my fellow Chicagoans view people in southern Illinois, who for many begins just south of the Willis Tower. No offense to those of you from southern Illinois. Rabbinic literature of the time portrays Galileans as bumpkins, fodder for ethnic jokes. Skeptics of Jesus in his own time would say, how can the Christ come from Galilee, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And so from the perspective of the religious power base in Jerusalem, Galilee seemed like a most unlikely place for a Messiah to arise. So now you've got this picture of the real Jesus. He's got an ordinary name. He's got a questionable background from a hick town that some people are calling Messiah. The paparazzi would have had a field day with that. I can read the headline now. Bob from Bland, Missouri. And there really is a Bland, Missouri. All apologies to anyone from there. Bob from Bland, Missouri, descendant of local ladies of the night, claims to be king. Well, let's ask an investigative question of our own. Seems like a logical one to me. What did the people who actually followed Jesus 
notice. What did they notice? Matthew records for us this observation in chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. That's it. That's what they noticed. He taught as one who had authority. That's amazing. There were plenty of teachers in Jesus' day just like there are today. But there were very few that taught with authority. That doesn't, use, that doesn't mean he used positional authority as a, to impose top-down rules. It meant that he embodied truth. He was what he taught. Another time, there were some guards sent out to seize Jesus. And they returned to the temple empty-handed. They said, because no one ever spoke the way this man does. They were awed by his presence. What would I notice about Jesus if I could get past the bad introductions? I probably noticed, noticed that he taught as one who had authority. He was transparent. He was trustworthy. He was truthful. And I probably remember the one thing that he repeated more than any other. The one thing that wouldn't make the headlines. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. And I remember that he did just that. He gave his life for me. And so maybe today, for you or someone you know, because of bad introductions, you've missed it. Jesus, the master teacher who taught with authority, willingly gave his life for you. No greater love, Jesus said, than that a man lay down his life. For his friends. And then he dies for us. Defining moment number three the invitation. There's a time in every relationship when it's decision time. Will you marry me? Let's do business. You're hired. Let's get together more often. Or not. Same is true with Jesus. You've investigated for yourself. You've gotten past the bad characters to see Jesus for who he is. Now what's next? Well, here's what it means if you want to start the relationship with him or you want the relationship to continue in a deeper, more meaningful way. When I decide to have a relationship with Jesus, I invite him to take charge. When I call Jesus Lord, that means I give up my control to control. That's tough for most of us to do. It's really tough for me to do. That's a major reorientation for most of us. Not only do we want to control our life, much of our unhappiness is due to the fact that I can't control people around me. I can't make my parents love me the way I need them to. I can't make my spouse behave in a way that pleases me. I can't control unfairness in life. And I'm constantly at the mercy of unpredictable events. And the result of all of these out-of-control circumstances is frequent frustration and anger. It's a predictable treadmill which calling Jesus Lord will help us get off. And so when things don't go the right way, we can just say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this one. But I'm trusting you that you will. 
It means we reorient our lives around a new authority and a new reality. I am no longer the sun around whom others orbit. God himself is the center and we, plus everyone else who calls Jesus Lord, we orbit around him. I don't want to be number one in the lives of my wife and children. That's a setup for heartbreak for all of us. Conversely, you may need to be reminded what inviting Jesus into your life doesn't mean. Doesn't mean you have all the answers. Doesn't mean you can predict the future. Sometimes we get anxiety prone over what our relationships may require or what we imagine they may require and we become paralyzed. That's not the way relationships work. They all require faith. I I can't predict all the turns in the road once I make a commitment in marriage, in my vocation, in life. How many of you knew everything it meant to have children before you had children? You read all the books, you talked to other people who had children, you pretty much knew what it was about to have a child and raise a child until you actually had a child. That's the way relationships are. In my relationship with Jesus, it's no different. I don't know all the implications of calling him Lord. And I don't have to. I just have to invite him into this relationship and take the next step in front of me a day at a time. This relationship, I think, especially today, doesn't mean that you've resolved all your doubts. James K.E. Smith says that in a postmodern world, for many, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. And then he says, we're all Thomas now. There should be a church hang, a sign hanging on every church that says, doubters welcome. Of all the questions recorded for us in the Bible, I suppose... This is the most important. And God asks it of everyone. And so, who do you say I am? What have you heard today? What have you heard the last five weeks? What's in your hands? Everything I need to make a difference in someone else's life. Where are you? Well, not where I'm supposed to be. But I'm headed in the right direction. Where's your brother? Probably more places than I think. Who's my family? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. And who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what about you? Is this a defining moment in your relationship? I think you can, I think you can discover, I think you can find, if you investigate just a little bit, a 
pretty wonderful Savior who's waiting for you.